Well, good morning, everyone. And yes, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to everybody. I trust that you had a wonderful time with uh, friends and family. And I'm um, just focusing on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that you are ready for a new year with all kinds of goals that we don't want to break after a week, right? Hopefully they're realistic. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for a new year. We never want to take life for granted, Father, that you have left us here and that you are sovereign. You're absolutely in control of every aspect, big and small, of our lives. If you would not have willed that we be here even this morning, we would not be here, Lord. So we thank you that you have a purpose for us, that you have called us to be a a people uh, here on this earth who live out um, our lives for your glory. Help us to do that. I pray that this morning you might remove distractions from our minds. That, Father, as we look at the words of your Son, Jesus, in Acts chapter 1, that we would pay close attention to that which is, Lord, most important for us as far as the vision of Christ for us personally and for us collectively as a church, not only here locally at Calvary Bible Church, but in our country, the true church, and globally. Father, help us to be people who pay close attention to these things so that we might apply them to our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. I'm going to zero in on this particular text, even though we'll look at some other texts as well. But I thought it um, important to just kind of um, ground our thoughts on this particular text of Scripture, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, even though our brother Alex read verses 1 through 11. And the title of this morning's message is Jesus' Vision for His Church. Jesus' Vision for His Church. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what any one man or group of men or any one of us thinks about the purpose of the church. What matters most, isn't it, is what Jesus' vision for His church is. Amen? So that's what we want to look at this morning. If you were to say goodbye to those who are closest to you, or those who are dearest to you, what would you say to them? What would be your parting words to those who are um, most beloved by you? You ever ponder that? Not so much even that it's like your last day of life, but just people who you're not going to see for a while. What would be those important parting words that you would say to them? Maybe a close friend or a best friend. Maybe a family member. Maybe a group of people that are most important to you. Maybe um, your spouse. What would be those parting words? I would imagine that you would answer that question with, well, they would be very important words. I would imagine that you would encapsulate um, your final parting words to those individuals or that individual as those things that are most necessary for them to know about you or your relationship or even responsibilities that you want them to carry out in your absence. I would imagine that they would be memorable words that you would impart to them. You know, some of us maybe experienced some of this during the holidays on a smaller scale. Maybe you hosted um, friends, close friends of yours. Maybe uh, you had family members who came into town and stayed with you or stayed close by, and you got an opportunity to spend a lot of time with them. 
Or maybe some of you actually traveled outside of our city or even our state or even our country perhaps to go visit close friends or, or family members. And, you know, you spend time having fun. You spend time eating a lot of food, probably more than you should have, right? You spend time hanging out with them. You cut up on old memories of your friendship or your family together and all of that. But then you had to say goodbye, right? You had to say goodbye. And you had to come up with words of comfort. Maybe words of encouragement for them because they were gonna, they're going to miss you. Maybe memorable things, important things that you want them to keep in mind. Maybe you went through that this holiday season. And you see, those, those parting moments, those moments when we are saying farewell to a, a special p- person in our lives or special people, challenges, don't they, to encapsulate what we want to say to that, those individuals in a very concise way and to make it the most memorable possible way that we can to, to impart something to them that is dear to our hearts. That's what those moments call for, call on us to do. And essentially, beloved, in the text that our brother Alex read earlier, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, and I would say also the parallel passages of the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and Luke 24, and those articulations of the Great Commission to believers, really encapsulate Jesus' parting words, those things that were dearest to his heart, to his apostles. We have those words here in Acts chapter 1. The final farewell words, at least for a time, of course, the parting words of our King and Savior Jesus Christ to His apostles that that they were to have as the central focus and concern of their personal and collective lives. These are the things. Mark it. If you remember anything about this message this morning and this text, these words right here for each and every one of us personally and collectively are Those are the things that are most dearest to Jesus' heart that His people would be about. These are the things that are important to our Lord. Luke, who is the writer of the book of Acts, also wrote a first volume work, which is the Gospel of Luke in our Bibles. And in both of those works, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, he writes to a close friend of his by the name of Theophilus. Theophilus who was most likely a high-ranking Roman official and a good friend of the physician writer here, Luke. In fact, in Luke chapter 1, verse 3, Luke refers to Theophilus as most excellent Theophilus, which was a typical title when addressing a high-ranking official. And Luke writes to this man, Theophilus, to tell his friend about Jesus, to write about the words of Christ, to write about the works of Christ, that Theophilus might believe in Jesus Christ if he is not a Christian. But most likely he was a believer. So he's assuring his friend of the words and the works of Jesus Christ. And if you notice in verse 1, he refers to his previous work as the first account. That's the Gospel of Luke, which Luke also wrote. And the implication is that Acts, listen, is now the second or the next account of Luke's writings. In other words, this is a two-volumed work of the author Luke. The Gospel of Luke being volume 1 and the book of Acts being volume 2. And both of them, the central figure in both of these books is the glorious, exalted Lord Jesus Christ. 
In volume 1 in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is in physical, visible form in His incarnation, His earthly ministry, doing amazing works and, and speaking amazing words as we're seeing in the Gospel of Mark. In volume 2, in the book of Acts, Jesus is still at work as we're going to see. Even though He's not physically, visibly with His church, this is the continuation of Jesus' work now through His people, through the church and the power of the Spirit, as we're going to see. And in these parting words, beloved, in verses 1 through 8, before Jesus' ascension, we see that Jesus Christ fully commissioned His church. This is, in different words than Matthew 28, but parallel and in harmony with those words, and Luke 24, the great commission, not the great omission, as many of us are not really living out our call to make disciples. Jesus fully gives His church a mission. And listen, He wasn't a Savior and a Lord who told His church to do a particular thing and didn't provide His church with the things necessary for her to, to flesh out her mission. Not only did He commission His church, but He provided everything for His church to carry out His work. And from this text, I want us to see three provisions. Three provisions that Christ gave to His church to fulfill her mission. And I want to challenge us this morning. If you are a Christian this morning... I pray and my hope has been that these provisions would be a great encouragement to you in the midst of a growingly wicked and hostile culture in which we live and country in which we live. You know, some of us who are here are very confident and we, we have these, these things are going to be reminders for us. And they're going to be, be things that we know before the Lord that we are striving to fulfill. And to you, I would say, excel still more and look to be an example and bring others along to fulfilling the Great Commission as we look at 2019. For others of us, as we walk through some of these provisions and the mission of Christ in particular, others of us are very fearful of the way things are going in our world and in our country. Others of us are very, feel very inadequate with all that's taking place, what am I to do? What is my role to play as a believer in this world? And I hope that you find an encouragement in these provisions of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your personal Lord and Savior fully provided everything that you need to be able to carry out this mission. For others of us, frankly, we are just flat out disobedient right now. We are so distracted by important but peripheral secondary matters. And we need not only this morning to be reminded of our mission of these words of Christ, but we need to be exhorted and we need to be challenged to be diligent in being about the main thing that Jesus wants us to be about. And so I hope that you are, as you hear the words of our Lord here, and as we ponder them together, that you would be convicted and that you would be renewed in the spirit of your mind this morning to be in 2019 a Christian on mission for the sake of exalting Christ by making disciples. I pray that that would be you and I have prayed for you. And for all of us, beloved, may I remind us as a church, personally and collectively, that God has called us out of the domain of darkness, and He's transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of His love, Jesus Christ, not so that we might be passive spectators, but that we might be active, proactive participants of His mission. Amen? That's why we are here. 
We could worship God more perfectly, more wholeheartedly, more effectively, more without any hindrance of our sin in heaven. We are here to accomplish a mission. And that is to make disciples and in so doing exalt Jesus Christ as He builds His church. And so from these parting words by our Lord is something for each of us and for us collectively. So what is our Lord's vision for His church according to Acts chapter 1? And how has our Lord Jesus provided for His church? We see first of all in this text that Christ provided His church with a glorious purpose. A glorious purpose. As you look around in our world, so many people, beloved, if it didn't hit you in the holidays and looking at everything that was taking place around us, so many people would live with no sense of purpose or objectives in life. Or... So many people are so deceived and they live with wrong or misguided goals and purposes and they don't even know it. They're deceived going after things that will never, ever achieve them happiness or joy in this life, you understand. But it's different for us as believers. And we find that here that we have a glorious purpose that Jesus has given us and that is to continue his work on this earth. That is our glorious purpose. And we'll put some flesh to that, but notice in verse 1, Luke writes, The first account I can post, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Underline that word, began. The first account of Luke, he says, the Gospel of Luke, I wrote to you concerning Jesus and everything that he began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Please notice a couple of things here. First of all, that Jesus's life on earth, Jesus's ministry while on earth was only the beginning. You say, what? Yes, only the beginning. Luke's first account in the gospel of Luke, he records the amazing ministry of our Lord from his incarnation His coming in human flesh to his ascension when he went back up to heaven. He records the ultimate humble servant speaking life-giving words, doing amazing, marvelous works. Ultimately, all of it pointing to the glorious, great person that we might believe in Jesus Christ. That's what Luke records for us. But Luke essentially tells us here in what he writes that Jesus' ministry is not finished. His redemptive work is finished. We don't add anything to Jesus' work on the cross. We add nothing as far as our works or human merits, anything to Jesus' sufficient sacrifice on the cross for sinners. Jesus Christ came to earth, lived the perfect life that you and I could never, ever live. He never sinned. He was blameless, spotless, went to the cross, died in the place of sinners, paid the debt that we could never pay, died on the cross, taking the fullness of the Father's wrath for our sins on the cross. But gloriously, on the third day, He rose from the dead, conquering sin and death that is the gospel of jesus christ the good news the provision of god for the salvation of sinners we add nothing or take away anything from that finished work jesus said on the cross it is what finished his redemptive work is finished we add nothing to it but as acts would go on to tell us here It was only the beginning of Jesus ultimately restoring all things to himself, his work 
on this earth is not finished. Otherwise, we would not be here anymore, beloved. We would not be here. So who is to carry on this work? The glorious purpose of continuing Jesus' work on earth, it is His church, not the building. The church, the people, those who have been redeemed, bought out of slavery to sin and transferred into the kingdom of Jesus' Jesus' kingdom. The kingdom of light. His people are to carry on the glorious work of Jesus Christ on this earth. And that is our purpose. That is why we are here. The church, beloved, you personally as a believer and us collectively as a corporate body. And all of those who are genuine Christians all over this world are here for the express glorious purpose of continuing Jesus' work on earth. Look at verse 2. It tells us that Jesus ascended to heaven. And notice, only after he had, by the Holy Spirit, notice, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. You know, some people look at that particular verse right there and say, well, is, is the, were those orders given to the church or those orders were given to the apostles? I think they were given only to the apostles, so they're not applicable to the church. Eh, wrong. Wrong. According to... Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. The church is likened to a a building. And the foundation of that building are the apostles and prophets, says Paul in Ephesians 3.20. With Christ Jesus himself, emphatically, as no one else could be this, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, he says. Christ Jesus, if you liken the church to a building... The apostles and prophets are the foundation, and Jesus is the cornerstone, the indispensable cornerstone, since all other stones are set in reference to the cornerstone. Jesus Christ alone is the cornerstone of the church. But upon this foundation are other disciples, other followers of Christ, others who turn from their sins and put their faith in Jesus, other Christians who are added as little living stones or rocks to, to, the, to this structure that makes up the body of Christ, the church. And so these instructions, the point is, is that these orders by application were given to all of us. Take note, upon Jesus' ascension, given in verses 9 through 11, there were orders that were given. There was a charge to the apostles and to all of those who would make up the church in the future. There was a baton passed, if you will. You might liken this to a great relay race on the track. Jesus Christ was the first runner, wasn't he? The one who redeemed people. But then what we see here in Acts chapter 1 in the Great Commission is that he passes the baton on to his apostles. And then the apostles passed on the baton to other followers, other disciples of Jesus Christ. And those disciples passed on the baton to others who continued the race. And ultimately, beloved, that baton has been passed on to you and I. We have been charged with orders to continue the work of Jesus Christ on this earth. There is no greater purpose for which you are here on this earth. Anything that you are doing, job, marriage, family, the neighborhood in which you live, any of your endeavors are to be done with Jesus Christ as the center and the circumference of everything that you are doing. And you ought to be asking the question, how is this endeavor, how is this goal going to bring glory to Jesus Christ and contribute somehow to making disciples to His exaltation? We ought to be asking those questions. 
What are we waiting in this great race? The anchor runner, right? Who is that? The Lord Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith. That's who we're, we're, we're waiting for. Can I ask you, beloved, this morning, very directly and personally, do you live with the expressed purpose of obeying what Christ has commanded in the Great Commission? Do you share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those in your home? Do you share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those in your work environment? Do you take opportunities to be a witness of Jesus Christ to those people around you who are lost souls who need to hear the good news of how they can be rescued from their sins and the penalty that's coming upon them for their sins? Is that what you're living for? If you were to survey your life, just for a couple of minutes right now, would it be said of you that you are living to exalt yourself? Or that you're living to exalt Jesus Christ, to make much of him on this earth. Even think about the holidays. How much of Christmas and Thanksgiving was more about the fluff and the stuff that surrounds those holidays rather than the central person and the work of Jesus Christ, who gives fulfillment and meaning to all of those things, without which none of those things mean anything, and they're passing away just like this world. How much of Christmas was about Jesus for you and fulfilling his mission here on this earth? Can I tell you this? The problem goes deeper than just the duty and the responsibility, the outward acts, if you will. If as a pattern of your life, you are not living out your glorious purpose to be about Jesus's work on this earth, you have a deeper problem that you need to pay close attention to and examine before the Lord. It might be that you've been in church all your life, that you're involved in many things, that you're very religious externally, that you even show up to all the great holidays, but your heart doesn't belong to Christ. You have no affections for Jesus. You don't love him. You don't truly know him personally. When we are talking about a personal relationship with Jesus and devotion and delight in him, as Pastor Carnes even talked last week from a psalm, it is foreign to you because you don't have a relationship with Jesus. It could be that the reason why you are not fulfilling the great commission in your life is because you are not yourself part of the army of God. You don't know Jesus. You haven't been born again. Could it be that you have been around God's people your whole life and yet you are not one of God's people? Could it be? Listen, being gripped by Jesus' person and work was something that his apostles needed to be gripped by before fulfilling their mission in the early church. You understand that? They needed to function based upon the conviction that Jesus was who he said he was and that he accomplished the things that he said he would accomplish. They needed to live that out by conviction if they were going to fulfill their mission, right? I believe that this is part of the reason why if you look at verse 3, it says that to these, these apostles, 
Jesus also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs. Notice this. Appearing to them over a period of 40 days intermittently and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Listen, why not just appear to them one time for five minutes, all of them together publicly, and then he ascends to heaven? Why for 40 days intermittently does Jesus appear in his risen state before his apostles and early disciples? Why did he do that? For 40 days after his resurrection. Listen, Jesus appeared to his disciples in order that they might be convinced that he had indeed risen from the dead. If they were going to preach that, and some of them die for that truth. They needed to be educated concerning the future kingdom. So Jesus spent a lot of time with them. But I also submit this to you, that they needed to spend much time with Jesus so that they would be gripped and astounded and marvel at who Jesus is and what he did. That word in verse 3, proofs, in verse 3 has the idea of convincing someone in a decisive manner so as to compel them to action. Listen, they needed to be gripped and, and captivated by Jesus so that they might preach him with boldness and authority and love and compassion. That's where it begins in the heart. These apostles had the chance to behold the risen Jesus, to eat with him and to talk with him and to, and to touch him and to ask him questions and grow in their knowledge and understanding of him. Beloved, they were never the same. They were never the same. They had a collision with the risen Jesus. As the rest of the book of Acts tells us, you know, these guys were not special guys. They were not angelic beings, these apostles. They were sinners just like us. We've already seen the call of some of these individuals in the Gospel of Mark. They were uneducated guys. By and large, they were not skilled in speech. They were not prestigious individuals, outwardly impressive. God-fearers. There was nothing impressive about them. But can I tell you this? One thing that they had when they were commissioned to go out and make disciples was that they were consumed and captivated by Jesus Christ. That's what drove them. That was the fuel Caused him to continue his work on earth. Beloved, listen. When you love someone, when you value someone, when you treasure and you cherish someone, you can't stop thinking or dwelling upon them. When you love and cherish and value someone or something, you cannot stop talking about that individual, right? Some of us experience that when we met our, our future spouse. You remember that? Personally, I still feel this way. But I couldn't stop thinking about my future wife. I'm sure you were there too. All of their little idiosyncrasies, their little facial expressions, the way that they talked, the way that they moved, all of that, their life goals, their purposes, you couldn't stop thinking or talking to others about them until people told you to shut up already about it, right? Why? What causes that? You love them. You cherish them. You treasure them. Affections drive duty. 
Affections drive the fulfilling of responsibilities toward an individual. Love drives action. Love drives obedience. Some of us are not there with regards to Jesus. Even as believers, our love is deficient, isn't it? We're not perfected. We struggle with this. I have to share Jesus, but I'm too afraid. No, I get to obey Jesus and he will empower me to do it. I get to do it. I mean, I have to spend time with Jesus every day reading the Bible through a Bible reading plan. That's what you're, you get to open up God's word and behold the, the, the glory of God in the face of Christ. You get to do it. I mean, I have to serve him by meeting the needs of other people in the church. You get to serve him by meeting the needs of your beloved brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. You get to serve him. What a privilege, beloved. What a blessing that Jesus could do all the work himself, but he wants us to benefit from serving other people and thus exalting him, right? What a blessing rather than a burden. Devotion, love, drives, duty, beloved. Whether it's sharing the gospel, whether it's serving Christ, whether it's serving your spouse, whether it's loving your parents, whether it's serving in the church, whether it's, it's sharing the gospel in, the, in your neighborhood, in your work environment, whatever context God may have you, love for Jesus and being captivated and gripped by his glory and what he has done for you and saving you from condemnation and from eternal hell, that should drive you to want to serve him and love him and obey him. Amen? Our problem in not fulfilling our mission and being about the Lord's work it's not just about the duty, the externals. It's that we are not compelled enough by Jesus in our hearts. And so we are driven to, do, to fulfill our mission. That's the problem. We don't find Jesus compelling enough. So the greatest need that we have as believers and anybody is to behold the beauty and the glory of Christ, beloved, all the more. All the more. Because as believers, if we are not passionate about Jesus' work on earth, it is because we are not passionate about Christ. That's the problem. That's the root problem. So this is where you need to begin this year, in 2019. Focusing on the joy and simplicity of devotion to Christ. Jesus may not be here visibly, physically, in human form, present amongst us, but he is, excuse me, present by his spirit and he is revealed on the pages of his holy word, isn't he? We behold the glory of God in the face of Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. The Bible is about ultimately the person of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament anticipates him. The gospel presents him to us. And the rest of the Bible expands upon the glories of the exalted Christ to the glory of the Father and the power of the Spirit. And so that's what we need to do as people. That's where it all begins. That's where the fuel to flame your passion for mission comes from, beloved. Growing in your love and knowledge and of Jesus Christ so that we might tell others about him. So we have a glorious purpose as a church that is to continue the work of Christ here on earth. But we need God's strength in this work, don't we? We are so inadequate. I don't know about you, especially during the holidays. 
Um, there are moments when I get really, really sad when I see what's happening in the world around us. How many of you feel like that? You get so sad. Even though I have this hope that goes beyond this earth in Jesus Christ and what he is going to bring a future um, uh, heavens, uh, uh, heavens and a new earth, new heavens and a new earth. Even though I have that hope, I am gripped by the by the how much work there is to do in this world as we are here. I hope and pray that as you watch the news and as you hear things that are taking place and you see the division and that you see all of that is ultimately the root problem is people are not right with God. That's the problem. And that drives everything. That leads to all kinds of corruption, all kinds of exploitation, all kinds of victimization. Ultimately, it goes back to the fact that people are not reconciled to their creator. And thus, they are not living for their their purpose to glorify him and enjoy him alone. And they escape to all kinds of things that they think are going to get them happiness and fulfillment, and they are deceived because that will never happen all the way to their deathbeds. And the least of their worries is physical death. It's going to be eternal separation from their Creator because they didn't live out their purpose on earth to glorify God. Are you gripped by that reality? And the more that I ponder that, and even driving here this morning to church, seeing people walking around, seeing people with hangovers driving... Seeing people knowing that they are living hopeless and helpless without God, does that grip you to the, to the gravity and the magnitude of the task that we have on this earth? I hope that you don't just throw your hands up in the air and say, Oh, the sovereignty of God. The Lord will reach him somehow. Listen, God wants to use you and us as a church to reach those people for Christ. That's what he wants to do. And then I'm reminded... Of the fact that we need God's resources, don't we? Because of the great magnitude of the task. Secondly, it's good to be reminded that Christ has provided His church, beloved, with great power. Great power. Not only a glorious purpose, but great power. Look at verse 4. Gathering them together, He commanded them. This is of absolute necessity, non-negotiable. Jesus commanded them, his apostles specifically, not to leave Jerusalem, but notice to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. And then look in verse 5. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the what? Holy Spirit, not many days from now. And then look in verse 8. But you will receive power when, who? The Holy Spirit has come upon you. Oh, Jesus had spoken to them much about the Holy Spirit, especially in the upper room. He told them that upon his departure, he comforted them with the reality that the Father would send the Holy Spirit who would be their great comforter, the Paracletos, the one who would come alongside of them and aid them and comfort them and encourage them and guide them and illumine them, open their eyes to the truth of, of Christ and remind them of the things that Jesus had taught them, the Holy Spirit would come. Why? Why was it necessary for the Spirit to come and empower these apostles? Because, beloved, the mission that Jesus was going to give them would be very, very hard, wouldn't it? They couldn't do it on their own strength. He even told them in John chapter 15, verse 4, Abide in me, me being Jesus. Abide in me. 
And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I mean, we had to underline that and highlight that in our Bibles. John chapter 15, verse 5. And put that in every place that we could possibly, every day, every moment of the day, be reminded that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We can do nothing. And you know what? Jesus modeled that kind of dependence during his own lifetime, didn't he? He who had infinite power at his disposal was a man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, lived in total and complete dependence upon the Holy Spirit. At his baptism, not only did the Spirit of God come upon Jesus, as we saw in the Gospel of Mark, as confirmation of who Jesus was as the Son of God, but also for empowerment for Jesus for his earthly ministry. And then at his temptation, remember the Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness. And the Spirit of God was with Jesus throughout that whole time. He was empowered by the Spirit of God. In other words, the pattern, beloved, of spirit dependence was something Jesus lived, exemplified, modeled for his disciples. And so here he instructs them of something that is indispensable. Wait in Jerusalem for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. The task is too great. You cannot do it alone. You cannot do it on your own strength. Now we need to stop and ponder this for a second. Think about... The, the apostles and who they were by this time. Three plus years of walking with Jesus. Hearing his words. Watching his actions. Learning from him. Being mentored by him. I mean, they had the, the ultimate college, Bible college experience, right? I would have loved to be a part of this Bible college, this seminary, the Christ Seminary. They had the ultimate experience. And training, then 40 days of teaching and revelation from the risen Christ concerning the the kingdom of God. I mean, the point is, you would think that after all of this training and equipping, they would be ready to go fulfill God's mission, beloved. And Jesus says, wait, wait. They had a lot of knowledge, experience. They were passionate, energetic. Most of them were in their 20-somethings, most likely. Energetic men. Yet they were not ready. Jesus says, wait for the promised Holy Spirit from the Father. Wait for empowerment. And we see why. Because as you've read the book of Acts, you see that very soon the church begins to grow and they begin to experience growing opposition and attacks and verbal abuse. And even some of them are martyred or beaten or flogged. Do you think that there's any way that these individuals could have stood firm in the face of those attacks, including the martyrs of church history, were it not for the power of the Holy Spirit? The answer is no, not in a way that would glorify God. They needed the Spirit of God. They needed to rely upon Him. In Acts chapter 4, verse 19, after being commanded not to speak of Jesus, It says in Acts chapter 4, verse 19, that with all boldness, they said this, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Such boldness, such zeal, such fervency in these individuals. 
They knew some of these religious leaders in Acts chapter four that had forbid them from preaching the name of in the name of Jesus, or some of the same individuals that had put their Savior on the cross had been directly responsible for doing that from the human perspective. Aren't they afraid? What's up with these guys? Power from on high. That's what's up with them. The Spirit of God. It's Peter. Didn't Peter deny Jesus three times? Not too long before that? And now all of a sudden, a few years later, he is boldly in the face of these guys getting up in their grill and saying, you're not going to do anything to us. Ultimately, it's about God, not about fearing you. So we're going to continue to do this whether you like it or not. Boldness. Empowered by the Spirit of God. Later on in Acts chapter 5, in verse 29, they experience opposition again. And it says in Acts 5, 29, but Peter... And the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel. And God has given and, and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. What in the world drives that kind of fearlessness in the face of opposition and potential physical death, which some of them did experience later on? What fuels that kind of boldness? The empowering of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 4, verse 40, after being beaten or flogged, which was a painful and brutal form of punishment, whips were used oftentimes with small pieces of metal to inflict pain upon people who were disobeying from, the, from a human perspective. After being beaten, For preaching Christ, listen to what they say. It says, it says that they went on their way from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for his name. For the sake of whose name? The sake of Jesus' name. Down in there it says, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ, publicly and privately, fearless fearless. Oh, we could learn lessons from them, right? In our day and age. We don't even begin to experience this type of persecution in our country, beloved. And so many of us are just fearful of even just saying, hey, you know, can I talk to you about Jesus? That he saves? That he forgives? Let me tell you about what Jesus did. Even in non-hostile environments, we have a difficult time just opening up our mouth to say something to an unbelieving family member. Notice the kind of persecution that they experienced, and yet they were bold amidst the greatest opposition, even physical pain and persecution. They had the divine strengthening that allowed them to stand firm, and us too, beloved. As the world continues to become more hostile to Christianity, we must learn to rely upon God's strength, His wisdom, to be people of prayer who are coming before our Heavenly Father and saying, Oh Lord, help me in this circumstance. I know that this is a divine appointment by You. Help me to be sensitive to those opportunities that You give me to share about You, to be a testimony, to make a stand for Your name. We need to be praying that God would empower us in those moments, beloved. You know what the greatest obstacle will be for us fulfilling the Great Commission? It is self-reliance and self-sufficiency. That's it. As a church, we won't fulfill 
the purpose of our existence if there is no reliance upon God's resources. Zechariah chapter 4 verse 6 says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's by my spirit that you accomplish anything. Apart from him, we can't do anything. Can I remind us as well, even in the sharing of our faith, of the good news to an unbelieving sinner, do you realize you can't save anyone? Our call as Christians is to simply share the message of good news with people and we leave the results up to God. He does the work by His Spirit in the hearts of people. If the Spirit doesn't work, beloved, in the heart of a spiritually dead sinner, nothing will happen. How many of us haven't experienced this in our own lives as as Christians in all the years that we've shared the gospel with people? You share with them and share with them and share with them and they come to church and and you keep bringing the, the gospel to bear upon their lives and nothing happens. But then one day something clicks. The light goes on in the human heart. And that spiritually dead sinner sees the the vanity of worldliness and materialism and pleasure and sex and all of those things and sees Jesus for who he is, for the captivating savior of their souls that he is. And bam, they come to faith in Jesus Christ. What happened? The spirit of God did the work in that person's life. You and I are called to faithfully deliver, lovingly, compassionately, be pleading with sinners, be reconciled to God, and we leave the results up to him, right? That's what we do. I recall the testimony of a man who had been married to a believing woman for many years, most of their 30 years of marriage. She had been a Christian, and he was a staunch atheist. And for most of that time in that marriage, he mocked her faith. He mocked her Christian friends, mocked her church going. And one day he decides to go to church with her. And that morning he hears the gospel. And then he goes to a potluck after church with this person, with, the, with his wife. And he's around other Christians. And he sees their joy and their love for one another. That there's something different about these individuals. And they went home that night. And she's in another room. And all of a sudden she hears weeping. And she runs into the living room because he never cried And he's there, and beloved, he's broken and convicted over his sin. God broke that man. He had heard the message of good news. And the Spirit of God worked in that man. And that rock-solid heart, the Spirit of God turned that heart into soft Play-Doh. And the Spirit of God began to mold that man into the image of Jesus Christ from that point on. That's what the the gospel does, beloved, in the power of the Spirit of God in the heart of an individual. We are simply called to just be faithful and share the message of Jesus, right? That's what we're called to do. Can I remind you of something? The Holy Spirit resides in you as a believer. And it's not just at the moment of salvation that the Spirit of God works in your heart to cause you to see the beauty of Christ. It's also in your ongoing sanctification, the process of you becoming more and more like Jesus. The Spirit of God, if you are not relying upon Him and His Word, you won't grow to be like Jesus Christ, right? We must be relying upon the Spirit of God, even in our sanctification and in our struggles with sin. can't do it alone, beloved, becoming more and more like Christ. Paul said that he ministered as a servant of Christ, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7, according to the working of God's power. 
And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, Paul said, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And then he says, For when I am weak, then I am strong. Oftentimes we think that well, if I have a sense of feeling weak or inadequate or I just can't do this on my own, that that is somehow a form of, of weakness and that we're in a, in a bad place and we must not be mature Christians. Actually, that's exactly the best place that God wants you to be, weak vulnerable, knowing that apart from God's work in your life, nothing will happen. And what does that cause you to do? To run and get on your knees before Almighty God and ask Him for His help, right? He wants us dependent. So mark it in His goodness. Christ has provided His church with a purpose to continue His work with great power, a glorious purpose, great power. And thirdly, Christ has provided His church with a good proclamation, with a good proclamation, by which I mean a good message. I had to use a piece, so I'm a preacher and I have to have all peace. Here's how we carry out our work. We proclaim the gospel. Notice verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? It's a very reasonable question that the apostles are asking Jesus. Jesus had talked a lot about this future aspect of his kingdom. So what are these apostles doing? They're simply connecting dots. If Jesus is the Messiah, who comes in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, then what should follow are the promise, the fulfillment of the promises to Israel, the restoration of all things. Right, Jesus? No. No. Notice Jesus' answer in verse 7. He says to them, It is not for you to know times or epics which the Father has fixed by His own authority. Notice that in His answer, Jesus doesn't deny a future for Israel when they will be restored and the promises of a literal physical kingdom on earth will be fulfilled, right? And we know that it's for the believing Israel. That's not national Israel. The issue is timing. The time has not come. And not only that, but they're missing the scope of God's blessing, that it extends beyond national ethnic Israel to those of other nations in fulfillment, as we saw a couple of Sundays ago, in fulfillment of the great Abrahamic covenant that through Abraham, the father of faith, God would bless all of the nations, right? People from every tongue, nation, tribe who would trust in Jesus Christ alone. They're missing the scope of the fact that God will save people from others outside of ethnic Israel. What does Jesus direct their attention to then? Notice in verse 8. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And here it is. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Notice, you're going to be my witnesses. Here is what you need to focus upon, apostles, disciples, followers of me. And, and as you see the book of Acts explode, what the church focused upon was witnessing concerning the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It says in Jerusalem, locally, and then Judea and Samaria, regionally, and here's where we come in, even to the remotest part of the earth, globally, you are to be witnessing in the words of Matthew 28, the Great Commission passage as well, parallel passage, that witnessing shows itself in making disciples, or is worded that way, make disciples. 
evangelize. Tell people the message of good news concerning Jesus Christ, that they would turn from their sins and trust in Christ and enter a lifetime of growing to be more and more like Jesus. Again, this instruction was first given to the apostles. But then as we see the book of Acts unfolding, we see that other Christians are proclaiming Christ as well, witnessing of Christ. And then this proclamation, beloved, is ours as well. We fall under that third level of witnessing to the uttermost parts of the earth. So what has Jesus focused him on? It's time to get to work. To proclaim me, to bear witness of me. And they did this. If you survey the book of Acts, Acts chapters 1 through 7 records the first three years of the church, church's gospel proclamation and the church begins to grow in Jerusalem. And then Acts chapters 8 through 12 record the next 11 years of the church's expansion in Judea and Samaria, those regions. And then Acts chapters 13 through 28 covers an 18-year span where the gospel goes well outside of Palestine to other parts of the world. And at the end of Acts, Paul finds himself in a Roman jail in Acts chapter 28, verse 31. But it says that the gospel was not incarcerated because Paul was preaching the kingdom of God, Acts 28, 31, and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. That's how the book of Acts ends. And there's an Acts 29, isn't there? We would fall under that, right? We continue on that mission of proclaiming Jesus Christ. Christ. Beloved, listen, what we see in this text and in the parallel passages of Matthew 28 and Luke 24 is that Jesus's heart beats for his father's kingdom. That is what is most precious to Christ. And like a heart monitor mirrors the heartbeat of a person, so the church is to mirror the heartbeat of Jesus. Each of us, personally and collectively, if we love Christ, we love what Christ desires. That's why Paul said in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, We proclaim Christ. We proclaim Christ. He wasn't just describing his own ministry. That's the ministry of every believer. We proclaim Christ. Share him. Tell people about him. Live, be, live Christ before other people. That we might have the opportunity to speak the message of Christ. We proclaim him admonishing every man or woman and teaching every man or woman with all wisdom that we may present every man or woman complete in Christ. That is evangelism and that is edification, the building up of someone in the faith so that they grow to be more and more like Jesus. That they would be mature in Christ. And Paul says, for this purpose... I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. He says, I work to the point of exhaustion, but according to God's resources to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ and people being built up so that they become more and more like Jesus. That was Paul's preoccupation, beloved. And it's the same mission for each and every one of us. So if I were to ask you, Where you live, who your family is, your family last name, where you work, um, your neighborhood. If I were to ask you those places and you were to give me the answer, I would answer and say to you, those right there are your mission field. Your home first and foremost, and the family that God has put in your home, your neighborhood, your job environment, 
those people that God has brought by divine appointment to your life, those people are your mission field. You ought to be making disciples in fulfillment of the Great Commission. We present the truth, beloved. We represent the truth of Jesus to our neighborhoods, to our cities, to our country, to the rest of the world. Can I remind us, as I have in the past, God has placed even our church building very amazingly, gloriously, and I believe it with all of my heart, so strategically in a place where we house Hollywood, Burbank. And we live in the surrounding community of the entertainment capital of the world, the epicenter of where so much of of stuff happens. Do you think... With a sovereign God that this is all coincidence? I know God, according to his word, and it's not a coincidence. We are called to reach people for Christ. We are called to recognize the divine appointments, the opportunities that he's given us. Beloved, our work is kingdom work. The church is is Christ's agent, according to Acts, as it unfolds, to expand God's kingdom. And so you and I personally and collectively must invest ourselves into the kingdom of God as we anticipate the return of Christ. We must do this. And we must do it proclaiming the good news. What is that good news? God is creator. He is holy. He has created each and every one of us. He is sovereign ruler, has authority and rights over your life. And yet you have sinned and rebelled and committed committed mutiny against your maker. For that reason, you are condemned and you stand guilty before God to whom you are accountable because he made you. You have no hope. But then there's the good news, isn't there? There is salvation in Christ. There is deliverance from the the captivating power of your sin. There is a way that you can be reconciled to your maker. God, because of his great love for sinners, sent his only begotten son, Jesus, into the world to live the perfect life that you could never, ever live, to pay the debt that you could never pay on the cross for your sins. And he defeated the great enemies of sin and death on behalf of repentant sinners by rising from the dead, conquering sin and death on the third day. Amen? That is the good news centered on the person and the work of Jesus. Beloved, do you believe in Romans chapter 1 verse 16? I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Do you really believe that? Then we ought to be preaching the gospel. We ought to be sharing the gospel with people. What is wrong with us? Have we forgotten where we were at one point and that God used someone to verbally speak the truth of the person and the work of Jesus? Do you remember that day or period of time? Oh, how glorious. What in the world happened to the old Campus Hernandez? Somebody shared the gospel and the Spirit of God worked in my heart and awakened me to see the beauty of the risen Christ. That's what happened. Oh, how we should long to see that in people's eyes. That they love Christ. They see Christ, and we tell them that there is salvation in no one else, that there is no other name but the name of Jesus under heaven that has been given among men by which they can be saved. Only by faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ can you be saved and rescued from God's condemnation. Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. 
You know, in light of the mercy and the love and the, and the grace of God, God requires and demands a response from those of you who are listening to this message that you would turn from your sins, turn from a life of self-idolatry and self-worship to worship your Creator and put your faith in Jesus alone. I plead with you that you would do that this morning. How long will you test the patience of God in your life? How long will you continue to go after the frivolous, vain things of this world, thinking that somehow you're going to get satisfaction? You will not get it. People on their deathbeds have realized it, and they've given their faith to Jesus Christ, beloved, and they've been saved by the grace of God. But they live to regret in those moments how they lived life so much for the things of this life that are passing away. We must remind people, too, that if they don't repent and trust in Jesus alone, they're going to suffer eternal punishment away from God's presence. Right? Many of us are afraid of talking about hell. Hell is a real place. You understand? It's a real place. Hell is eternal exile from the presence of God. As a reminder of the magnitude of people's sin. Who wants to go to hell? No one should want to go to hell. And yet we withhold that because we want to be loving and we don't want to tell people that, that it's that bad. It is that bad. They're headed for judgment before God. Eternal separation from their creator. You need to remind them of that. But if they come to Christ with empty hands of faith, does God forgive, beloved? Even the worst of sinners? Yes. Some of us have lived to tell about that, right? Worst of sinners, God is able to save. See, we stand in a long line of endless, endless long line of gospel proclaimers. As we look at 2019, beloved, I want to encourage you and exhort you and challenge you. As your pastor, we have work to do on this earth. And no matter how hard things get, and no matter how hostile the culture might be, and no matter how many things may hit you like a curveball, something unexpected, listen, God is sovereign. He's in control. He's given us a glorious purpose. He's given us great power by His Holy Spirit and the guidance of His Holy Word. And He has given us a wonderful proclamation a gospel message good news for the world the gospel which has the power to save even the worst kinds of sinners amen may we be about that beloved let me pray for us heavenly father lord we thank you for the clarity of your word lord in the midst of a confused world and culture in which we live lord we need not be confused as christians or as your church, about what you have us to do here on this earth. Thank you. Thank you that you have given us a wonderful purpose to continue the work of Jesus, our Lord, on this earth. Help us to do that in the power of your Spirit. And Lord, help us to be bold and loving and compassionate with the saving gospel, the good news of the person and the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.